Hello, everyone. You're listening to ACC Chicago's podcast, It's All Hearsay, a podcast where lawyers give current news, practical tips, and real stories on legal issues relevant to in-house attorneys. My name is Chantal Kazai, and I'm in-house as Director and Senior Counsel of Litigation with Discover, and I'm your host. This episode is brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein, Becker & Green, one of our gold sponsors. A quick disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to and does not constitute legal advice. It is for informational purposes only. While this audio recording may be considered attorney advertising in some jurisdictions under the applicable law and ethical rules, the determination of the need for legal services and the choice of lawyer are important decisions and should not be based solely upon advertisements or self-proclaimed expertise. No attorney-client relationship has been created by this episode And this episode makes no representation that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services performed by other lawyers. Listeners are encouraged to contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter discussed in this episode. And visit us at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to learn more about, like, comment, or subscribe to ACC Chicago and It's All Hearsay. let's get started. In this episode, we're proud to present Spilling Secrets, a monthly podcast series from Epstein Becker Green Attorneys on the future of non-compete and trade secrets law. In a moment, you'll hear Peter Steinmeier, Kate Rigby, Millie Warner, and Eric Wybus discuss steps and tactics that employers can use to mitigate non-compete and trade secrets litigation risks when hiring from a competitor. Thanks, Chantal, for having us and for featuring our Spilling Secrets podcast on ACC Chicago's It's All Hearsay. My name is Pete Steinmeier. I'm the managing shareholder of Epstein Becker and Green's Chicago office and one of the co-chairs of EBG's Trade Secrets and Non-Competes practice. With me today are Millie Warner talking to us from the Big Apple, New York City. Thanks for joining us, Millie. Thank you, Pete. Happy to be here. Eric Weibus, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, the home of America's original and still all-time favorite podcast, Car Talk. Thanks, Pete. Beautiful day in Boston. The only thing that would make it better is if the Celtics had won last night. Sorry about that. (laughs) And last but certainly not least, also hailing from the home of Car Talk and the Boston Celtics, Kate Rigby. Hi. Glad to be here today. Okay. We are in the midst of the great resignation. Three million people are quitting their jobs every month and employers in virtually every industry are struggling to fill vacancies. If you are one of those employers looking to hire experienced talent, and who isn't, where better to look for it than from a direct competitor? And if you are an employer looking for litigation, where better to find it than hiring from a direct competitor? We're here to talk to you today about how you can minimize the risk of litigation when doing just that, hiring from a competitor. Kate, if you go back to the office after we are done recording today and one of your clients calls you up and asks if it is okay for them to hire someone they think is a superstar, their biggest competitor, what are you going to ask them and why? Definitely a couple things. The basic thing you want to know is, does the applicant have a restrictive covenant? Do they have a non-compete? Do they have a non-solicitation? And also to know not only do they have it, but what are the terms of that non-compete and how does that affect potentially where you're going to hire them within your organization? And you know, sometimes an employee or an applicant will 
tell you that they don't know if they have a restrictive covenant, whether it's a non-compete or a non-solicitation. And, you know, when you're the hiring employer, you really want to run that down. And so what you can suggest doing is asking them if they have access to their file already, take a look at their documents, if it's at home or otherwise on their computer, you know, take a look at any employment agreements they have. Sometimes these restrictive covenants can be in offer letters. Sometimes they're in stock option agreements or other, you know, type of, you know, handbooks or policies. So have them check those. If they're still telling you they don't know, you know, you can suggest other ways for them to look into it, whether it's having them have a conversation with someone in HR, you know, saying, you know, hey, I just want to have a sense of few years from now, if I'm looking forward in my career, whether I have a non-compete. So you can suggest ways where the applicant feels less worried about giving a heads up to their employer that they're looking for another position. And then once you do have an agreement, if they do have a restrictive covenant agreement, you want to have someone, whether it's outside counsel or an experienced in-house counsel to review the restrictive covenant agreement to get a sense of what the risk is hiring that person. These days with all the different laws across the country and the differing uh, requirements, notice period requirements, the type of employees that can have a non-compete and non-solicitation, all of that's really different. And so you can't have someone just eyeball these. You want to make sure that an experienced counsel takes a look at that agreement to assess the risk. And then to do that in conjunction with the business who has a sense of, well, if I'm looking at this non-compete you know, term, what does that mean for our business and whether that person can perform the work in our business? So those are some of the things that I would suggest people do when they're looking at hiring from a competitor. Thanks, Kate. So Eric, if you've done all of that initial analysis that Kate just talked about and the client says to you, okay, well, what should I tell the business the risks of litigation are if we go ahead and hire this person? How do you do that litigation analysis? Sure. That's actually a really tough question that I get all the time. And it's tough because obviously you start with the agreement itself, assuming you can get your hands on it. And you think about what position this person is going into. Is it a competitive role? And obviously the geography is important and other factors like that. But then I really try to dig in on the intangibles because that's where this question is answered is in the intangibles. And there's a lot that we don't know coming into a case. And we may not be able to know coming into a case, no matter how much research we've done based on the industry, for instance, that that particular competitor One thing I like to do initially is have our librarian run a litigation search to see if the particular competitor has a history of being litigious, whether they've filed these types of lawsuits in the past. But then I also really want to know some things about that company. And often this information you can only get from the prospective employee or the newly hired employee. And I'm not talking about confidential information or trade secrets. Of course, you don't want to ask for that goes against everything we're talking about here. But you do want to know if there's anything particular going on at the company that we should know about. For instance, is there new management in place that feels the need to set an example? Have there been a lot of employees leaving recently and they feel the need to staunch the bleeding? Has our company been hiring a lot from that company such that there's bad blood between these two companies? Or in the past, have we been able to hire from this company conversely and there hasn't been an issue because we've got a good relationship And we've proven in the past on both sides that we're not going to put these employees in positions where they can harm their former employer. So it's really these types of intangible things that you need to understand because 
you can't guess what's in the mind of the competitor of your opponent going into litigation. And it may seem like your typical run of the mill hiring where there are no real red flags, but there's something going on behind the scenes that you don't know about. And that could be what triggers the litigation. And conversely, it may be that you think that this is an extremely high risk litigation, but perhaps they're putting themselves up for sale and they don't want a litigation hanging over their heads. And that might be a factor for them not to file a lawsuit. So you really need to dig into those things as well as the obvious, such as the agreement, the competitive nature of the role and the geography where the employee is going to be placed. Okay. Thanks, Eric. So Millie, now, after you've done the initial assessment that Kate talked about, after you've done the litigation analysis that Eric talked about, and assuming that the individual likely has an enforceable restrictive covenant and your client still wants to go ahead with the hire, are there things that the hiring employer can do to minimize the risk of litigation? Sure, absolutely. And you know, it, it really depends on the facts, but you know, one thing that the hiring employer might look into straight away is whether the position can be restructured to avoid the restrictions. So even though the companies may be competitors, perhaps the incoming employee's role can be tweaked so that the position is not competitive with what the employee actually did for the prior employer. If that's not an option, uh, perhaps the hiring employer could consider placing the incoming employee on the bench for a period of time. I mean, it depends on how long restrictions are and you know whether whether the hiring employer can wait but you know often just waiting it out may may be an option if none of those options work you know the hiring employer could consider requesting a waiver of the restrictions from the prior employer is that actually done um sure it is but not often it's you know not not typical that the prior employer is going to agree to just uh forego its restrictions um that it obviously bargained for and, and put in place presumably for a reason but look it depends on the circumstances uh, it can depend on a host of factors like what relationship the employee has with management at the prior employer the circumstances of the employee's departure you know whether emotions are, are running high, et cetera. So what type of precedent a waiver would set for the prior employer? So, you know, if there are a lot of employees in the same position uh, with these same restrictions, you know, giving a waiver in this instance, you know, could suggest that the prior employer really doesn't have a legitimate protectable interest in enforcing these types of restrictions. But perhaps there are distinguishing factors where this wouldn't be so concerning, you know, from sort of a precedent perspective to the prior employer. You know, another another option is similar is uh, a buyout. You know, if, if the hiring employer, you know, could pay to essentially buy the book of business and the practice that this incoming employee has. That's one way to resolve this, which, you know, is something that could be explored you know, from, from the outset or even in the midst of or after uh, the litigation and in, in settlement. Thanks, Millie. Those are all great points on behalf of the hiring employer. What if you are the individual who's looking to switch jobs? You're a senior exec, you're a highly compensated, very successful salesperson, scientist, engineer, computer programmer, and you want to go to a direct competitor and you are worried about getting sued. Are there things that you as an individual need to be particularly aware of? And there are things that you as an individual can do to minimize your risk of getting sued. I throw that out to, to anybody. 
going back to what Eric said earlier as sort of a major point that individuals need to understand in the same way that companies do, individuals need to understand what their obligations are first. And they probably pretty wise, especially for those in these really competitive industries that they understand what their company's past is. And when people are leaving to go to a competitor to understand that from that landscape. But regardless of that, I mean, leaving being a clean lever, essentially, right? Not taking steps to either give the perception or actually taking anything with you. And so there are a lot of things that you can do to minimize either the impression or actually taking things with you. So when you're interviewing with another employer, don't use your company's phones or computers, right? To have those Teams or Zoom meetings with the new employer. Don't start sending yourself for the first time emails to your home email address from your work right? It starts to look interesting when the first time you start to do that is when you uh, are starting to interview with the new company. So those are just a couple initial things that you want to be careful about, about when you're interviewing with a new company and, and what impression you're leaving with your current employer. This is Eric. I would add, you know, typically when we're advising an employee in this context, we're also representing the employer. And one thing I tell them, I advise the employee directly or I tell the company to do is leave every single thing, whether or not it's confidential information or a trade secret on your desk, give it to HR, leave your computer, ask the company if it's a personal phone, for instance, if they'd like to wipe it. If you want to keep anything like your Outlook calendar or your contacts, ask and have your former employer's IT department help you with that. And I tell them, you don't need anything for your new job. It's confidential information. We've got, or your new employer's got everything you're going to need. Don't take something because you think it's going to make your job easier because it's a form, because that form may be filled out and have confidential information in it. You know, leave your business cards, leave the, uh, the advertising materials, the marketing materials that are in your trunk, bring those into the office. You don't need anything. You don't need souvenirs. We'll get you prepared to work at your new job on day one uh, without any of that. I agree with all of that. And the other thing that I always say to my clients is that this area of the law is a little bit like divorce law. It's very emotional. It brings up all of these feelings of betrayal and disloyalty and dishonesty. And I mentored you and I gave you these opportunities. How could you possibly leave and go to a direct competitor? And so it is particularly important not to rub salt in the wounds, to be professional, not to be a jerk on the way out the door, because I've literally seen multiple lawsuits probably wouldn't have been brought if the person had just been a little more professional and respectful on the way out the door, but you just don't want to rub salt in the wounds and it's unnecessary. And one of the things I've really seen lately that I really find somewhat baffling that individuals are doing, I don't understand why they do it. And it always raises a question about their motive is when they give their notice of resignation and they refuse to say where they're going. It just baffles me because it always raises a question. Why won't they tell me this? And it's those types of things that get the emotions flowing in this area. And those types of emotions result in unnecessary litigation. Pete, by the way, that kind of fact will always show up in the complaint. The employee, oh, yeah. the, the employee lied when they left or refused to tell us where they're going. It just makes you look sketchy, even if you're not. Yeah, it's just dumb. Just dumb. Especially in the age of LinkedIn, you could always find out. It's the first thing I do is I always pop on LinkedIn and see where they went. So it's really dumb. So Millie, Eric talked about outside counsel and how you know frequently 
we are put in a position of representing both the individual and the company that can raise conflict situations. It can be problematic. There are situations where we can't do that. You want to talk to us just for a little bit about some of the issues associated with whether we can represent both the hiring employer and the individual who's changing jobs? Sure. I mean, look, obviously it can be far more efficient if you can use just one law firm, you know, one one outside counsel team to represent the company and the individual employee or employees. Just from a coordination perspective, efficiency, et cetera, that can be much easier. But there are circumstances where the interests of the hiring employer and the incoming employee may may diverge. There, you know, might be confidential information that the employee took from the prior employer without the knowledge of the hiring employer. Sometimes the the hiring employer doesn't know everything that the incoming employees did on the way out the door. And in that circumstance, the interest can diverge. The, The hiring employer may not want to take responsibility for actions that it did not know about, it did not authorize. That can be a risk. So if there's any sort of risk that perhaps the hiring employer doesn't know everything, perhaps the incoming employee engaged in some type of misconduct that the hiring employer, you know, never would have sanctioned in that circumstance, you know, you're, you're really going to have to consider uh, getting individual counsel for the employee. Eric, there's a related topic that comes up and it, it can be tricky. That is the question of when should the hiring employer consider indemnifying a candidate? When a client asks me this question, I, my first question back to them is always, did the candidate ask you for indemnity? Because if they didn't ask for it, there's no reason typically for you to just go ahead and offer it. Oftentimes, more senior executives or savvier employees, especially those that are represented by counsel, will ask for indemnity. And at that point, you've got to consider, your client has to consider how important this employee is to them, whether or not if litigation is filed, you would take a step such as terminating this employee or you would um, step up to bat for them. And also you've gotta be careful of a claim of interference. There's case law in Massachusetts and I'm sure in other states that hold that indemnifying an employee for any and all wrongdoing, regardless of whether or not they actually engaged in it, can satisfy the element of improper motive or means for a claim of tortious interference. Those decisions, there's two of them that I'm aware of, both involved additional wrongdoing, for instance, encouraging the employee to take confidential information or steal clients. But the courts did discuss in both of those cases, the fact that indemnity was offered and there was no kind of carve out for wrongful conduct on the part of the employee that led the courts to find that at least at the injunction stage or the motion to dismiss stage, the element of improper motive and means had been satisfied for an intentional interference claim. So you've got to be careful of that. And there's special language you can use that can at least minimize the risk of that, but it's something you you need to be cognizant of when advising clients in that space. Eric, something that you said a few minutes ago causes me to have to ask a hot potato question. And I don't know which of you is going to want to catch the hot potato and answer this, but as much as we would like to think that none of our clients has ever done anything wrong, how do you handle the situation when your client could be the hiring employer or it could be the individual? It turns out that the individual did do something wrong and they did not leave with a clean briefcase and that they did take things, could have been innocent, could have been not so innocent. 
I've seen a lot of different fact patterns and a lot of different degrees of innocence. What are some of the factors that you consider when that hot potato lands in your lap in real time as a lawyer? You're not just on a podcast, but you're in a real life situation and you get that hot potato phone call. What are the considerations? How do you handle it? I throw that out to the group, one brave soul. Settlement. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> At least in part. I mean, I would say do your best to come come clean, to try to minimize the damage that's already been done by coming clean, returning the information, being upfront about it. I always ask the client, again, it depends on the level of how innocent or guilty they may be and how intentional it was. But assuming it's it's not something egregious, I always ask the client, how important is this employee to you? Are you willing to spend the money on litigation to protect this employee and to keep this employee? And my main focus at that point is on protecting the company and making sure that it hasn't infiltrated their systems such that their entire systems or a portion of it may be subject to forensic review during expedited discovery. And, you know, is this something that causes you, the new employer, to not trust the employee that you're now hiring? Does it put them in a different light? I think you need to consider all of those factors. But part of it is they did something wrong. There's going to be litigation. You're probably going to settle it, like Millie said. But is it worth the fight up until you've settled it? Uh, And are you just going to get yourself in, in more hot water by defending an employee who's done something really bad? And there are degrees of wrong. Um, (laughs) I've certainly had clients say, well, he's a bad boy, but, and I've had clients say, forget it. If he lied to his former employer, he lied to me, we're going to end this immediately. And then I've had people who truly innocently get caught up in litigation for truly innocent conduct, like leaving a job with a flash drive in their, in a pocket of their backpack that they didn't remember or emailing themselves documents to their personal Gmail account during the age of COVID because it's easier to print from their Gmail than it is from their work account. (laughs) They're trying to circumvent the system. So uh, I guess in my experience, every situation is different there. Kate, one of the biggest areas of non-compete practice really is what I'll call cease and desist letter practice. We draft them, we respond to them. all the time. It's a big part of what do we do? So when the hiring employer receives a cease and desist letter, what should it do? Yeah. So it really depends on the situation, right? If you get a letter and it's just putting you on notice that someone has a restrictive covenant, you know, non-compete, non-solicitation, and they're not necessarily indicating to you that they think it's been a violation, but they're more informing you, you may not need to respond to it at all. Although, Internally, you want to make sure you've, you've run that down if you haven't already done that. So you want to make sure there's nothing else lurking that you don't know about. You may also know just from in that industry that certain competitors tend to send these letters out sort of as a form in-house counsel and or the business that's been doing this for a while, especially working for that company for all, will have a better sense of that. So you may not need to do anything, but if you do receive that cease and desist letter that outlines, right? These are major problems. They went to a direct competitor. This directly violates the non-compete, or we understand they're working in a territory where they were selling, you know, to directly to the same customers, and this is a violation of the non-solicitation, then you have a different way that you need to look at it and respond. And you want to think about how the letter came to you. Did it come to you from an outside counsel? Did it come to you from in-house counsel from the company? And thinking about responding in kind. When you're the recipient of one of those cease and desist letters, You want to do your best not to escalate the situation more. You want to be able to respond and let the other side know, you know, these are our policies. 
we tell applicants beforehand and during a time of offer, we don't want competitive information. We don't want you to bring competitive information. If you can show in a response that, you know, you have in writing from someone that, you know, they certify that they didn't bring anything over and that you indicated that they're not allowed to bring that over, that's really helpful. Being really, you know, reassuring to the other side that you take this very seriously. And if they have specific information for you to consider to let you know that and keeping that dialogue open, I think goes a long way to de-escalating the situation. And I think uh, just to add to that, I think you can respond in kind and without escalating the situation, but still be assertive and say, we did nothing wrong here. The employee did nothing wrong here. Here's why you're wrong. And it may, it may in fact, make sense to have outside counsel do that, even if inside counsel sent the initial letter. And it won't necessarily escalate to litigation, but it'll show that you're taking the situation seriously. The only one other thing I would add is that more times than not, if you get the second type of letter that Kate mentioned, not the reminder letter, but the more assertive, here's what the employee has done wrong letter, you need to cease and desist. Ignoring that letter will be far more likely to lead to litigation than responding to it either assertively or meekly or however. If you ignore the letter, they're going to assume there's something wrong here. Like you said, Pete, these are like divorce cases. It's going to get their minds running. They're going to wonder what's going on. Why are you ignoring us? Why are you not responding? What else could you have done wrong? And next thing you know, they've filed a lawsuit when really you could have just responded and explained the situation and and reached a settlement, or maybe they would have just gone away if it was something simply explained. Millie, I've never kept statistics on this, but if I were to guess, I would guess that maybe one out of 10 cease and desist letters actually results in a lawsuit. What is the difference between that one that results in a lawsuit and the nine do not? Why is that circumstance generally different? I'm not sure that there's really any magic to the letter itself that either sparks litigation or the opposite. I'd say it's more the facts. It's more the the circumstances of the particular case. The the issues we've discussed, you know, how important is this employee to the prior employer? I mean, is this a huge loss for the prior employer where, you know, the the employer is worrying about losing a huge revenue stream, you know, lots of important clients? I mean, obviously that's going to be a circumstance that's going to justify the, the litigation expense for the prior employer? Did the employee take confidential information um, on the way out the door? Or are there reasons for the prior employer to just suspect that the employee might have taken um, confidential information on, on the way out the door? And you know, as we've discussed, emotions too are incredibly important here in, in either leading to the, the courthouse door or letting the matter die. So, you know, did the, the employee leave under circumstances where there's going to be a high sense of you know, betrayal? Like, did the employee lie on the on the way out the door so that the employer is going to feel not only betrayed, but also, you know, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, if they lied about this, you know, who knows what else they're lying about that we don't even know about yet. And, you know, perhaps a Litigation and discovery is the only way we can really find out and and protect ourselves. So you write the letter, and most of them don't lead to litigation, and you know one does. I think it's just the circumstances. Pete, I would add anecdotally, I, I agree with your one out of ten probably. Well, what that doesn't take into account is that the if the facts are egregious enough, you won't get a letter. You'll just get a lawsuit. And so you typically send a letter when you're still deciding whether to file a lawsuit or you want an explanation because perhaps there is an explanation. When there's no explanation, 
I tell my clients, don't bother sending a letter. Let's just go to court if it's that egregious. That does play into those statistics a little bit, but you're right. Most most of these are resolved pre-litigation. Yeah, I agree with all that. The one thing that I do frequently say, one of my rules of thumb is where there's a thief involved, that's where you're really likely to see litigation. A contractual breach is bad, but that may not do it. But where there's a thief and it's really ugly, that's when you're going to see a lawsuit. But I agree, Millie, the emotional aspect is huge as well. All right. So Kate, what is the one thing that an employer has to figure out before he or she makes an offer to a direct competitor's employee? Only one. Well, <laughs> you have multiple options. I won't limit you to one. <laughs> that's that's hard for a lawyer, Pete. Come on. I, no, uh, I Well, I mean, the most basic, of course, right, is do they have a non-compete? And is this going to be a problem to be able to hire this person, right? And, and really understanding the risk, right? How important is this person to your organization? Are they a critical hire? And even if they are, what's the risk to you all long-term in hiring this person? Because that all flows from everything else, right? If someone's going to give you that cease and desist letter, whether there's going to be potential litigation might depend on the company that they're coming from, whether they have a history of suing, whether they have a history of just sending letters, you know, people in the industry know those things and, and have a sense of that. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest areas that you need to look at when you're hiring something from a competitor. But there's so many other things, you know, you can, you can get a lot of <laughs> red flags when you're hiring someone. Are they already talking to you about all the clients that they know, they know they can bring with them? Are they sharing what seems to be confidential information in the interview or are they not, right? So you, you can sometimes get a gut check. And I think sometimes the business needs to be honest about that when they're interviewing folks, because to the point that you've all made earlier about emotions, emotions run high in these cases, especially when people take things. But they also run high at the hiring stage because especially right now where talent movement is, you know, more than we've seen in a really long time. And in a lot of industries, it's really tough to hire people at these higher levels or that have a specific, you know, expertise. This is the perfect person, but you really need to assess, okay, but is it worth it to hire this person knowing that they have this non-compete? So those are some of the things because I can't just, I can't pick one. All right, Eric. When you're helping a client who's facing this kind of litigation, what's your nightmare scenario? Sure. Well, I think generally speaking, like you guys, we've handled so many of these that there's probably not anything we haven't seen and can't handle. But what I always tell clients is that what makes me nervous is that I don't know what I don't know and that I won't know that without them telling me or the new employee telling me. That's what scares me. That's my nightmare situation because you could get either you're the one filing the lawsuit, you know, you spend a week or overnight, perhaps uh, drafting a complaint, getting all your facts together, you file it. And there's a really obvious and easy answer. And you get a call from the lawyer the next day on the other side saying, well, did you take this into account? Or did you know this? And of course you didn't. And now you kind of look foolish and it's a small community. And you don't want to look foolish in these cases, in particular, because we handle both sides of them. But on the flip side of the case, if you're interviewing witnesses and you're interviewing the new employee and they don't tell you something. For instance, they don't tell you that the day before they left, they downloaded the entire Salesforce database. So you respond to a cease and desist letter and you're assertive, as I said, you should be before. And you say, how dare you accuse my client of doing this? They would never do something like this. And then in response, they say, well, here's a forensic report that says they did exactly what I accused them of. Now, what do you say? And not only do you feel foolish, but you've got to backtrack from it and you've got to deal with it. 
and you've got an angry client on the corporate side that you didn't figure this out, even if it was the employee lying to you. And it's just a huge headache. So really at the end of the day, the only nightmare I really have, frankly, is not knowing something. Because if you know all the facts going in, you can deal with them. It may lead you to take a different strategic approach. It may lead you to try to settle it more quickly or to not file a lawsuit in the first place. But you just need to know that information going in or you're not going to make good decisions. I'd add to that, you know, it's the same with whether it's a trade secret, insurative covenants or other employment cases, you know, you always tell clients, look, I, we can handle figuring out a strategy. We just need to know what the facts are so we can figure out what that strategy is. And that's really important in this area of the law where you have, again, different state laws and you have different nuances that matter and the facts and the specifics fact matter. And so really getting from your clients early, what actually happened, you know, what matters to your business those things are, are really important because you're going to be more credible to the other side if you're doing that. When you start to have to constantly shift your responses and your facts, then you start to look like you're losing credibility and it's a lot harder for you to get what you need for your client. Well, thanks, Kate, Eric, and Millie. I look forward to our future conversations about the future of non-compete and trade secret law. And a special thank you to our listeners. If you would like to subscribe to the show for free, please go to ebglaw.com forward slash subscribe and click the box for trade secrets and non-competes slash spilling secrets podcast series. Thanks again for joining until our next episode. This is Pete Steinmeier signing off on behalf of the spilling secrets team. Thanks for listening to ACC Chicago's it's all hearsay. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on ways to mitigate risks when hiring from a competitor. Brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein, Becker & Green, one of our gold sponsors. Be sure to tune in next time as we bring you even more content. As always, if you like what you heard today, visit our website at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to sign up for our email list as well as check out all the links and resources for It's All Hearsay. Like, comment, or subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at ACC Chicago. That's it for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Chantal Kazai. See you next time.